Before we begin, I want to mention uh, something profound that uh, happened last Sunday. Um, after the service was over, I had several of our uh, Sunday school teachers come to me uh, and say, uh, Pastor, you, um, your message this morning related very well to the topic in Sunday school. Uh, and all three of these classes were looking at different texts in Scripture. Um, and my response to them was, that is the beauty of sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's Word is that the Word of God is unified from front to back. Uh, so whether we find ourselves in Ephesians in Sunday school this morning or in the book of Genesis, uh, the message is the same. And so we sit under that Word this morning. And so I share that to say that God is doing exciting things in the life of our church as we simply sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word. But also, my encouragement to you is if you have yet to plug in to one of our uh, Sunday morning Sunday school times or one of our other Bible study opportunities, uh, that you would um, find an opportunity to get plugged into those. If you'd like to know more about our Sunday school classes, I would love to talk to you about that. Uh, because again, God is doing uh, great things in our church through um, the preaching and teaching of his word. If you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning as we conclude a four-part series that we have titled Unity in the Body. As I was prayerfully considering what the first two sermon series would be, the Lord laid unity on my heart, brought me to these texts, this has not necessarily been a topical sermon series, although the topic has centered around unity. We have simply come to the Word each week uh, and sat under its authority. Uh, but my prayer is this morning, as we conclude this time, that we would, as Mark just prayed, be sensitive uh, to the Spirit's moving and the conviction uh, that he brings to us from his Word this morning in regards to unity. So let's begin in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2, and you'll follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace and has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, 
and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let us pray. Lord, we come this morning to sit under your word and we herald the gospel proclamation that we just read about. We proclaim before each other this morning and before the world around us that we are your people, we are your church, and we will submit ourselves to you and you alone as our King and Master and Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you for the peace that the gospel brings. I pray that there would be peace in this place this morning, that your spirit would rest here, and that you would move in our midst, not because of anything that we have done or have to offer you, but only by your grace, Lord. Would you work in our hearts and minds this place this morning and make us more like your son? God, I pray that you would guard us from error, that the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable before you. And it's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. I'm sure we have some history buffs here this morning. Uh, If you're a history buff, you're probably familiar with the date, May 8, 1945, known as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. It was the day where uh, peace was declared in the Western Front of World War II. A peace that would not last very long. Uh, Although peace was declared on that day, we still, to this day, see the effects of World War II on Europe. Some could argue the war that is taking place right now in Ukraine uh, can be traced directly back to the end of World War II, specifically in Europe. We can declare peace for a moment from a war that takes place in our world, but the reality before us is is that this world in its sinful state will never truly know peace. We can declare wars over, we can declare days, days of peace and victory, but we live in a divided, sinful, broken world. But what we see in the passage this morning is that the God-man comes, Christ himself, and he brings a peace that is everlasting and eternal. Christ's work on the cross makes a peace that unifies his church. Uh, We find ourselves in the book of Ephesians this morning. Uh, This letter was written by Paul from a Roman prison in around 62 AD to a predominantly Gentile congregation. And so a lot of the meat of Ephesians deals with the Gentile state apart from the covenants of God before we see that language in the passage that we've come to this morning. 
And he emphasizes the primary in verses 11 through 13, who they were, who they are now in Christ. And then we see the implications of that in verses 14 through 22. And so we begin by looking at verses 11 through 13, where Paul tells us to remember who we were and know whose we are. You see there in the text, verse 11 and 12, the word remember. He repeats himself there, uh, most likely for emphasis. This is the command that drives the entirety of the passage. It's the only imperative that we find here in the text. He repeats it twice, and he wants these Gentile believers to remember who they once were. He begins by pointing out the state um, that they are in physically, considered uncircumcised, The Gentiles were viewed as polluted, unclean heathens, and they bore the mark of that status physically on their bodies in uncircumcision. We know from the Old Testament that circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant, the promise that God made between the nation of Israel and himself. And to be outside of that covenant was seen as shameful. It was seen to be without God. And Paul speaks with this type of language in the passage we come to this morning. And we feel the tension throughout the New Testament and the Old between the Jews and the Gentiles. These two separate groups these, uh, that are made up of tribes and people that are at odds with one another. Now, when Paul speaks here of the circumcision and uncircumcision, this in no way means that the Gentiles could not obtain a spiritual circumcision of the heart that Christ speaks of. It also does not mean that just because you are a Jew who is circumcised that you are in the faith. Christ comes and he says it's not about the physical sign, but it's a matter of the heart Have you been circumcised in the heart? Has your heart been changed by the power of the gospel? And so Paul is emphasizing here in verse 11 alone the distance that the Gentiles are from a holy, sovereign God. They are far off. But then in verse 12, he highlights four specific realities of their state as Gentiles. You can see it for yourself in the text. They're first separated from Christ. Not only are they excluded from a physical right, but they're excluded from salvation. Now, this is important here because what we need to consider is he's talking about their state in the past. And so Paul is telling us here that the Old Testament is pointing to someone. We know that someone as Christ. The Old Testament is a proclamation of a Messiah to come. The Jews were to be an expectation of Christ coming, the Savior of the world coming. And for the Gentiles, they did not have access to this message. They were outside of that. They had no part in the salvation that comes in Christ and Christ alone. It would not be until the apostles like Peter and Paul and the others go to the Gentiles that they would have access to the gospel. This is important because salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. 1 John 2.23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. 2 John 1.9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Christ himself says in John 14.6, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. The Gentiles were separate from this. Secondly, he says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Their citizenship by birth and the providence of God was outside of the realm of this covenant promise, this people that God had chosen for himself in the nation of Israel. They were alienated. They were foreigners. They had no access to the rights and privileges of the people of God. Thirdly, he says there, they were strangers to the covenants and promises of God. Again, this points back to the Old Testament, telling us that there is a Messiah to come. The Gentiles would have had no access to the truths and promises of God, whereas Jewish children would have known of these things from birth. The Gentiles would have no access to these things. If they were to know of God, it was in a general revelation type of sense. They would have known of his existence because Scripture tells us creation is, declares that God exists. And we know from the Old Testament and characters like Rahab that the Gentiles are looking in on the nation of Israel and they're seeing Yahweh at work among his people and they know that he's the one true God. You Again, think of Rahab and Jericho. The spies come into Jericho and what does Rahab said? She says, I've heard of this Yahweh. I've seen what Yahweh has done to deliver his people from the mighty hands of the Egyptians, but that's all she had. She didn't know of the covenants and the promises. In order to follow God, they had to fully embrace the rituals of Israel. Now we see Rahab eventually, Scripture tells us, being brought into the fold of Israel, being a part of that covenant promise. But it wasn't until those promises were brought to her that she could know of those things. Finally, it says, they have no hope and are without God. Uh, the word there that Paul uses to speak of their state of being without God is the, worth, is the word atheos, where we get our word for atheist. And this is interesting that Paul would essentially call them atheists, saying that they don't believe that God exists, when we know that the Gentiles were religious people. We think of Paul at Mars Hill in Acts where he points out the statue that was to the unknown God. They were not denying God's existence. They were religious people. But Paul is right in using the word here to say they are without God. Because those who do not worship the one true God, no matter how religious they may be or ritualistic in their worship, are without God. They celebrate what they do not know. The love of a false god is just as useless as the declaration of none. I think of the millions of Muslims that exist in our world today who are very diligent in their worship to who they believe is the one true God. In fact, they would point fingers at us and say that Christians, we don't believe in one God, we believe in three gods, but their, their act of worship and their, their intentional efforts to please this God are for nothing because they do not worship the one true God. And yet, Paul tells them here in verse 13, this is no longer who they are. Look at verse 13, but now. 
But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 4, he uses similar language to say, but God being rich in mercy. Praise God for the but now and but Christ, but God in Scripture. We were once far off, but now we have been brought near by the blood of Christ alone. Not because of anything that we've done but only because of his grace. This picture of distance for the Gentiles is now irrelevant in verse 13 because Christ comes and intervenes on their behalf, reconciling God to man. And it is, don't miss this, by the blood of Christ alone. We see the words here later in the passage, hostility. There is enmity, there is distance, there is rebellion taking place in our hearts towards a holy, righteous God. But that hostility isn't just us towards God. The hostility is from God to man in his wrath that will be poured out on sinners like you and me who do not repent and believe in the gospel. And yet Christ comes and by his blood, he brings about propitiation. This is a fancy Bible word that I like to teach my kids simply means satisfaction. When you hear that word propitiation, it just means satisfaction. The wrath of God is satisfied by the blood of Christ. The wrath of a holy God is coming on all sinners, and Christ comes and he satisfies that wrath by his own blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And dear friend, if you are in Christ this morning, this is your story. You were once far off. You were separated, alienated, strangers. You had no hope. You were without God, and yet Christ comes and intervenes on your behalf. And this morning, you have hope eternal. You have peace that lasts forever. And the implications of just these few verses is life-altering. If you were to uh, mow your grass on a hot Texas day, in the heat of the day, 100-degree weather, you mow your yard, maybe you do some pulling of weeds from the flower bed, You work for a couple hours and you come in and your clothes are soiled with sweat and and dirt and mud, potentially even blood, and you go upstairs to your shower and you cast aside the old filthy rags and you clean yourself of all of the impurities from the day's work. And when you get out of the shower, you do not pick up the soiled rags and put them back on. No one would do that in their right mind. No, you go and you get clean clothes. You put on the new self. Paul tells us in chapter 4 to put off the old self and put on the new. And this is the application for us that we see later in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn with me over in just a few verses to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17. The application of what he just shows us in verses 11 through 13, plays out very practically here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. I want you to listen to the language here and then see the application. Verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now pause there for a moment. 
technically they're still Gentiles. And yet Paul tells them to not walk as the Gentiles do. Why? Because they are new. They are no longer uh, defined by a people group. They are the church. They are the bride of Christ. They will live differently. He goes on, he says, in the futility of their minds, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, in which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." If you are truly in Christ, you will not only live for Christ on Sunday and live for the world Monday through Saturday. The implications of the gospel on each and every one of us is completely life-altering. Everything about us is changed by the power of the gospel. The way we talk, the way we interact with our coworkers, the way we raise our children, everything about us is changed by this profound truth. And we see it there in verse 25 of chapter 4. Look at the implications of how this changes the believer's life. Verse 25, he says, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We no longer speak in lies and falsehoods. We speak what is true. Verse 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We resolve our issues and our conflicts with one another in Christ. We don't let the resentment and the anger fester because we're new people. Verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work. I love this. If you're a thief in this place this morning, this verse is specifically for you. But for each of us this morning, he's saying whatever your past is, whether you're a thief or a murderer or an adulterer, whatever your past is, now in Christ you live in the complete opposite way. Verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. When we gather in this place, we do not joke and jest like the cooler talk that happens in the office. No, we talk about things of substance and things that are of importance. That doesn't mean we don't mess around and laugh and have fun with each other, but the content is pure. I think of our uh, church's softball team. When we go out to the softball field on Friday night, we, we sound different than the rest of those teams, and there's a reason why. It's because Christ has taken hold of us. The umpires and the people at those games say, there's something different about you guys. And we say, amen. It's not because we're good and cool and, and, and really neat guys. It's because Christ has taken hold of us. He goes on in verse 31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Listen to verse 32. This sounds so familiar to what we've already heard in this sermon series. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If you are in Christ this morning, if you have experienced the peace that 
only comes through the blood of Christ, your life will be changed completely. And the implications of that are not just in our personal lives, but we see here then in the rest of the passage a corporate implication, implications for the life of the church. In verses 14 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2, we see that Christ gives a peace that unites the church. Uh, Paul, in writing Ephesians, he uses the word you to speak of the Gentiles and their former state, and then he uses words we and us to talk about Jews and Gentiles as the church. And we see this language here in verses 14 through 22. What was once separated, Jew and Gentile, has now been brought together in a peace that only comes through Christ. The hostility that was between the Jews and the Greeks was something that was both tangible and intangible. We've already kind of touched on the fact that they just didn't like each other, and we see that in history, but there were tangible signs of their hostility for one another. You look no further than the temple in Paul's day and in the day of Christ. There was a wall that was built up around the temple uh, where Gentiles, foreigners, could not cross. Uh, You think about Um, when Solomon builds the temple in his prayer, he prays that one day the nations would come and worship at the temple. And so to allow for that, they gave a special space for the Gentiles, the foreigners, to come to. And listen to the words that were written on the wall around the temple. This is not anything that would be very inviting at your church. I would not recommend we put this on the walls of our church. No foreigner is allowed past this point on penalty of death. It's not very inviting But that's the hostility that we see between these two people. And the text tells us Christ himself, in his flesh, breaks down this wall of hostility between tribes, Jew and Gentile. By taking on flesh, by becoming a man, he alone is the one who can provide peace between these two groups that are so hostile towards one another. And he does so by establishing a better covenant. The rituals of the old covenant are pointing to a better one to come. The sacrifices of the old covenant are pointing to a better sacrifice that is to come in Christ. A covenant not of works, but a covenant of grace. And in this covenant, Christ builds out of the old a people for himself that we call the church. And it is one body, and it is united in Christ alone people from every tribe and tongue gathered together to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity, and it is all of grace. It is all of God's doing on our behalf. The wall of hostility is broken down between men, but most importantly, the wall of hostility between God and man is broken down. We see this in verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We were not just haters of men. We, before we were in Christ, were haters of God. God's righteous judgment was coming on us, and Christ took upon himself that so that we can have peace with God. Again, the only way to have peace with God this morning is through this gospel message that has been proclaimed throughout the world. Repent and believe the gospel.
Repent and believe in the Jesus of the Bible who came to this earth and lived a sinless life and died on a cross in your place, but he did not stay dead. He rose victorious over sin and death once and for all, and he will come again as King of kings and Lord of lords. Are you his child this morning? There is a false peace that we like to fabricate in our time. That has been true throughout all of history, and we see it here in the text. For the Jew, their false sense of peace was rooted in a religious system. They had manipulated the Old Covenant in such ways in the New Testament time that it was hardly recognizable, and they had found a peace in religion. There's no peace to be found in religion. The Gentiles had found peace in the fact that they just didn't know God, so they just felt like they weren't accountable to him. And so the message this morning is whether you were raised in the church or if you were born into a tribe in the most most remote parts of the world today and have no access to the gospel, true peace is only found in Christ. And when we believe in Christ, we go from separated, alien, strangers, no hope, no God, to look what he says there in verse 19. We are fellow citizens, members of the household of God built on the foundation. He's telling us here, we are now a part of the kingdom of God, the family of God, and the church, the bride of Christ. This kingdom, this family, this church is built on doctrine, Sounds strange. Notice what he says there about the apostles and the prophets. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles, with the authority of Christ, preach the gospel and plant the church throughout the the world in this time. And as they do that, they establish the doctrines of the church, the doctrines of the faith that we still stand on to this day. But it doesn't just start with the apostles. It goes back to the Old Testament with the prophets. The Old Testament is essential to us in the New Testament. We cannot have the new without the old. The prophets lay the foundation of doctrine for us that ultimately is built on Christ and Christ alone, the cornerstone. I love how R.C. Sproul talks about Jesus as the cornerstone. He says that he is the linchpin for the entire foundation. Everything is built on Christ. And so in this, Paul is telling us this, there is one true church. And that church is built on true doctrine and true theology and true gospel. And we live in a day where more and more there are churches who proclaim false doctrine and false gospel. Cults that cling to the name of Christian and yet have nothing to do with the Christ of the Bible. We must be on guard. But notice what he says here, that we're growing up into a holy temple, a people from every tribe and tongue who is set apart in this world for God's glory alone. The wording there in verse 21, where he says, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Uh, This word, this verb, grow, is not a command, but in this verb is a sense of encouragement. Paul is encouraging us this morning to grow 
in Christ together. And in verse 22, we see a unity of faith among the believers. There is a progress. Christ is building his church right now to the ends of the earth. The gospel is going forth right now to people who have yet to hear, and people are coming to salvation. Christ is building his church, and he will build his church, and we, as a part of that, are being built up together as one body for the glory of Christ alone. And the implications, then, is that this encourages unity in the body of Christ. John Calvin in speaking on this peace that comes between Jews and Gentiles, he illustrates it this way. Listen to what he says. He says, If two contending nations, two nations at war, were brought under the dominion of one prince, so one prince is victorious, he brings peace, he says he would not only desire that they should live in harmony, they get along okay, but that they would remove the badges and marks of their former enmity. We don't just gather as the local body of Christ to pretend that we get along well. We cast aside the old self and we are united in Christ and Christ alone. So again, for application, I I go no further than Paul's words himself. Look at chapter 4 again. Verses 1 through 7. This is, this is the application. This is Paul's application for us this morning. As we read these verses, I want you to hear the emphasis again on the one and how we are one body. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Did you see the, the, the practical implications, though, here? Did you see it in verse 2? Did you see it there also in, in verse 1? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Verse 2, he says, with humility and gentleness. This takes us back to our first Sunday in our series on unity when we talked about the humility of Christ and thinking of others is more important than ourselves. We think of the gentleness that we looked at last week in dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ who fall into sin. We think of the patience that God shows us. But then bearing with one another in love, we again think of last week where we talked about bearing one another's burdens. And then verse three sums it up well, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? In the words of Paul, is Christ divided? No, Christ is one. We are his bride, we are his people, so we are eager to maintain unity in this place for the sake of the gospel. You know, it's interesting as we started this series together, I I told you that uh, 
If I'm going to preach a series on unity in the church, this is the only time I can do it at the beginning. Before I know all of the intricacies of the life of the church. And so after the first sermon, uh, someone came up to me and said, you know, pastor, there's something going on in the life of our church that we don't know about? I said, no. You know, this is, this is the time for this. But what has happened is over this series and being your pastor and doing life together, guess what? Stuff has come up. And that's the point. We are a family. And there is never going to be two people who see eye to eye in a family. There's going to be differences of opinion and perception, and, and there will be conflict that arises in this place. So hear me as we close. The point of this series is not whether or not we will avoid preferences and conflict. That's not the point. Those things are going to come up in the life of the church. Here's the point this morning of this series. Will we, as Calvary Hills Baptist Church, unite around the gospel? Will we think of others as better than ourselves? Will we avoid pride-driven quarrels? Will we avoid self-absorbed cliques? Will we bear one another's burdens? Will we do good to others? Will we live in peace? Issues will come, dear friend. But what unites us here this morning is not our preferences. It is Christ and Christ alone. So may we, in the words of Paul, be eager to pursue that spirit of unity that Christ brings to us. And so I close with a phrase that I shared a couple weeks ago. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Let's pray.